Hello, and welcome to the uh, Faith and Works podcast. If you have uh, uh, listened to or, in fact, maybe seen a few of our uh, podcasts where we did a video recording, not all of them, uh, you know that uh, we try to pick a, a theme. We have a uh, uh, often start our podcasts with a question. Uh, we are the sponsor, that is, of the uh, podcast, Faith and Works, is a production of the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit. And so uh, if you think of us as interfaith, that's fine, but also think of us as an organization that honors values, uh, the values of people who uh, have faith, certainly, but also those people who uh, would claim to be independent from uh, a faith experience. We see their values as important also. And so uh, in this podcast, we are starting a series that is uh, in response to the question, what is sacred in our world today? I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, the, the whole idea of sacredness, we, we do use that word quite readily. And in faith experience, of course, we have rituals and ritual space and worship space that we consider sacred and so on. But we also use the word sacred uh, quite widely. And uh, there are many areas where we could explore what is sacred in our world today. The one we want to talk about right now is the idea of children. Are our children sacred today? I think there's some evidence that would make us question that. Uh, and so I've invited uh, a um, a person who has some experience in the area of uh, psychology uh, to be along with me. And I'm Bob Brutel. I happen to be the vice chair of the Interfaith Leadership Council. Uh, I uh, am also an adjunct professor of religious studies and history at the University of Detroit Mercy. I'm retired and uh, spending as much time as I did when I uh, had uh, professional involvement uh, working with the interfaith uh, movement or the interfaith uh, uh, leadership council these days and find it quite fulfilling. Along with me, I have uh, Dr. Saba Marouf, who is a psychotherapist who deals uh, with children. And so when I was uh, asking some of my friends uh, whom they would recommend to, to talk on this subject of uh, children and what they mean to us today and whether the word sacred is meaningful in that respect, uh, I am happy to have Dr. Marouf with me uh, as a professional in that area. Uh, Dr. Maroof, what else would you say about your uh, practice and uh, you, you as a person that would help our audience know uh, what you are bringing with you in terms of your professional ability and also your uh, uh, lived experience for our uh, discussion right now? Thank you so much, Bob. First of all, um, it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much for extending the invitation to have this conversation with you. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Um, so actually, I'm a, I am do therapy as well, but I'm, actually, I'm a psychiatrist. So, um, you know, which kind of leads me to this whole, you know, I started when I was starting my professional career in, in college, I had to kind of just, I had to make that decision. Do I want to take the route of do, getting a PhD in psychology or do I want to go to medical school and pursue, you know, uh, being a psychiatrist, but I did know pretty early on that I wanted to, um, go further in my studies and specialize in child and adolescent psychiatry. Um, so, uh, so I am a child, adolescent and adult psychiatrist, and, uh, I actually see, so I see the whole lifespan and it's kind of one of the, um, one of the only fields in medicine, um, you know, especially as we're getting so specialized 
um, these days. Uh, it's one of the only um, fields where you can see uh, all ages actually, which I really, actually really enjoy. Um, I don't have my own practice at this time. I, uh, I'm kind of an independent contractor, but I've been working now for uh, about 10 years uh, out after my training. Um, but I've been practicing psychiatry since uh, 2008. And, um, and it's one of the things that I actually I really love about my job is working um, with, as I mentioned, all across a lifespan, seeing all age groups and particularly working with families. And I think it's actually been an interesting journey as I was starting my training um, and as a, a medical student and then a, a resident, I had, I started having um, kids in, in, in medical school. My firstborn was born uh, uh, my last year of medical school. And then I had one in residency and then one in fellowship. And then when I was all done and working, uh, you know, professionally as a, as a psychiatrist in the workforce. So, um, and it's just been very interesting because I remember the days where I was a student and I was trying to figure out what I, um, I, you know, I had an idea of what I wanted to do, but still trying to hone in on that. And I was doing my psychiatry rotations. And I remember sitting in with, um, you know, part of a lot of what you do in medicine um, is observing and observing kind of the, uh, the child psychiatrists in training with teenagers. And I felt like I could relate so much with them and it didn't feel like I was so far away from that experience. And now these days, I feel like I relate so much to the parents. Um, and so in that sense, uh, I do feel, you know, people ask me all the time, does being a child psychiatrist help, you know, you be a better parent? And uh, they probably asked my husband that too. And, and I, I would... <laughs> probably gather to say that he would probably say no. Um, he's a very patient parent. And a lot of times he does a much better job um, in the parenting realm. But I think for me, being a parent, I think makes me a, a better and more informed, um, nuanced um, psychiatrist. Like I, I feel like it's one thing to give, you know, to um, advise or guide um, people, but until you've kind of, I personally, you know, worked, um, walked in those shoes and kind of understand the day to day, it's easy to kind of say, oh, well, you should have a routine and you should put your electronics away a half hour before bedtime. And when you're dealing with those, those same issues on the ground, um, with your own kids and you kind of can have a little bit more, I think, empathy, um, as you're working with kids and parents. Um, so as I mentioned, um, so I'm a psychiatrist and I also have my own children, um, four kids, that uh, whose ages range from uh, my oldest will be 16 next month uh, to the youngest is seven. Um, and she's, uh, she's just finishing up first grade. So I have first grader, fourth grader, seventh grader, and a 10th grader finishing up the school year. Um, so, so, and again, I feel like that kind of, uh, it's, you know, definitely gives me a different perspective um, and kind of more of a nuanced, I think, worldview as I'm working with families. Yeah, so I, I, I'm quite certain of that. We all know that uh, we get advice from people all the time who uh, tell us exactly what our kids should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, and they forget that our kids are also telling us exactly what they should or shouldn't yes. be doing. <laughs> and more so the older they get. <laughs> right. So you've got a, a son that's probably got a, a, a permit now to, uh, to drive and uh, is causing you and your husband great anxiety. Uh, is he driving on his own yet or is he uh, driving only with parents so far? With parents, um, but I'm actually surprised that um, actually one thing I've noticed is that as I was growing up, we were already we wanted to get our license right when we turned 16. And I've noticed even with the kids that I see, there's a lot more hesitancy, some anxiety. Um, I know there's it's a it used to be a simple process. Now it, there's so many steps to getting a license. So I wasn't sure if he was going to be on top of it. And really, I was like, okay, well, maybe we can wait till he's 17 or 18. But nope, he's actually made it a goal. He's like, no, I want to get my license at 16. And I was like, oh, okay. So he's ready to drive on his own, but we, we still need to do some driving. And that's the interesting thing too, was as parents, um, my husband is very calm. Um, I think he actually, we had to pick up, my, my parents live out of state. And one day they had to pick them up from the airport. And um, I couldn't believe it. It was when he, pretty soon after he got his permit, my husband let him drive to the airport. And I was like, Oh, I, luckily I was not in the car, but I'm the anxious parent in that, in that scenario. He's very calm. And I like, if I 
see something or I'm like, please don't do, you know, I'm going to say it. I'm not going to like try to be gentle. <laughs> so he's like, mom, you're making me more anxious. And it's funny. Cause I remember being in the exact same position with my own mom. So it all comes, you know, comes back around full circle. Yeah, there's certainly uh, there's certainly a lot of anxiety that surrounds being a parent. I uh, my my children are all uh, adults, and uh, we have four grandchildren, uh, and those uh, those grandchildren uh, are so special to us, uh, and we probably do a better job of uh, uh, responding to their needs as grandchildren than we did in responding to the needs of our children. I'm not sure why that is. We have a little more time, I suppose. Uh, we, uh, we don't feel like the whole responsibility of disciplining them and uh, helping them to be responsible adults is on us. In fact, we think maybe the opposite is true. Our job is to not discipline them and to help them uh, have some freedom that their parents might not allow. So. Uh, uh, you know, send them back to their parents and let let the kids complain to us about how exactly. we're spoiling them. But it, it you you can tell from uh, from what you've said so far and what I've said so far is that we both feel very uh, responsible to uh, children, to what it means to have children, what it means to nurture children. Uh, they are very important to you and to me, and uh, and and kind of amazing beings, right? They they just uh, you know uh, they just teach us so much. Uh, they teach us how to deal with with the current or the present, right? I mean, we we are kind of habituated to. Uh, the kinds of patterns that we grew up with, right? And uh, and our kids uh, say, no, you don't do that. You do this, right? They they bring us into the future in some ways, uh, and so they they I think in a sense they have a responsibility that we don't even recognize that they're supposed to be uh, uh, bringing us along, educating us at the same time as we think that we have this primary responsibility for educating them. Uh, it, it brings me to uh, to talk about uh, this tone that we've established, I think both of us, uh, this feeling of, of how important children are and, and what they mean to us, uh, brings me right to the subject that we wanted to talk about today. And that is, uh, are our children sacred in the world today? Uh, and Put another way, is it is it different to say that our uh, our children are a sacred responsibility? Are we taking that sacred responsibility serious uh, in a, in a serious way? So I'm wondering if uh, I'm sure uh, people do not see you in in a in an audio you know an audio po podcast, but. Uh, I am, uh, you know, looking at you, Dr. Maruf, and and you're wearing hijab, and so of course we know that you are uh, a uh, an observant Muslim. I'm wondering how your faith looks at children. What uh, what do you think you bring from your faith into this idea of the sacredness of children? Well, um, I think you know. Well, there, there's so much to say. Um, you know, I think, of course, it starts from, you know, thinking just about humankind and where we all come from, kind of the story of creation, and that as human beings, we know human beings are sacred. And um, I know that this is, uh, you know, similar, kind of the creation story, I believe, is similar in the monotheistic faiths, um, that we are special in the sense that God asked um you know, the angels, which, you know, in Islam, you know, they're made of something different. Human beings are made of, you know, kind of the soil or clay it's described as, whereas angels um, were made of light. And, um, but yet still when, after God kind of, you know, kind of 
created us and we had our soul that he asked the angels to bow down to, um, to human, to the first human, which was Adam, um, peace be upon him. And, um, and I think, I mean, kind of all starts from there that there, what is it, what was so special about us, especially if we were made from something that's of the earth, why did God, you know, ask the angels to do that? And, um, as I've heard and studied, you know, it really, I think it's, it's, there's that, um, you know, what, what makes us sacred and there's something special. And I think, um, I think many would agree. It's, um, kind of like the, uh, our will, um, and, uh, the fact that we make choices that we, that kind of, you know, why did God create us? It kind of goes down to the, uh, back to that creation story. Um, now I'm an observant Muslim. I'm not a scholar. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, in that sense, but I guess, you know, kind of, that's my understanding. That's kind of, and it kind of, you know, and if you're looking even at kind of uh, ethics, um, we have autonomy, and and I and that's a really big uh, a big theme. Um, even um, raising children as a parent, as a physician, that you know you have to, we have to respect each other's autonomy and our everybody's right to make choices, um, and that basically to make choices and to live the life that they're going to live. Um, I think it kind of comes down to that. So their children in essence are sacred. Um, they're, uh, born innocent. Um, that's another, uh, theme in Islam is that every baby is born as an innocent being. Um, I mentioned that I have teenagers, but I I have younger kids. And actually my brother just had his fourth baby, him and his wife had their fourth baby last night. So I have a new baby nephew too. And it was just funny because I was just thinking about it. And I'm, you know, as I have older kids, I'm just reminiscing on just like that, that stage when I was a first time mom and having young, young kids. Um, And of course, everyone tells you it's going to go by so fast and enjoy it. And you don't really realize it until it does. Um, But I'm missing that stage. Um, But just that innocence, that zest for life, that enthusiasm, of course, it's so physically taxing and grueling to take care of another being and all their physical, physical needs. But then just, you know, that they need you, they're dependent on you, that they will just rest their head and just like lie on you. And sometimes I know my oldest, I would put him down and he would wake up right away. So I just, you know, but at least I could take him with me today. I argued, had a big argument with him because we needed to go somewhere and he was, he made us late. And I was just thinking, gosh, I remember those days I could just stick him in the car seat and carry him where I needed to take him. But, um, so in our faith, children are born, um, pure, they're born innocent, and we have this idea of um, what we call a uh, fitra, F-I-T-R-A-H is a transliteration. And that's kind of like everybody's essential essential kind of being. Everybody's kind of born with, with their fitra. Um, actually, I was thinking about my brother. I was talking to my dad about him because he's, um, he's an amazing dad, an amazing husband and son and brother, very caring, um, just does so much for his family. And I was like, I mean, you telling my parents, like you guys did an amazing job raising him, but I also think it was kind of his nature too. He's al- always been a very soft kind of soft person, you know, like very, um, like doesn't talk too much, not a lot of fanfare, um, but very, just does the work and very soft hearted. And, and I was just kind of thinking that's of course my parent to my parents credit, but also again, that was kind of part of his fitra. And we believe that all children, part of that essence is that they want to like they want to recognize and everybody basically leans towards recognizing and worshiping one God. That's, that's kind of our belief. So I guess in that sense, that is what every child is born with that, with that innocence. And that may might be kind of what I guess we would define as sacred, that every being is born with that inside them. And um, as they go through this world and through the trials and challenges and the choices that we make, sometimes we falter um, but we're always kind of turning back towards God. And that's why it's always, um, it's a huge, you know, we're encouraged even, you know, we just finished Ramadan about a month and a half ago. Like we're constantly always encouraged to ask for forgiveness for things that we do that we realize and what we realize, not what the things that we don't realize that we're doing even. Um, so that, and though the word in Arabic is Toba, which means I believe like turning back to God. So those are all very sacred concepts. And then uh, I, I really like that, that you brought up this point of having a sacred responsibility kind of goes hand in hand. If we believe that all of us are sacred, our children are sacred, then yes, it is a sacred responsibility that we have as parents um, to take care of our children. 
And um, it's just, it's very interesting seeing the dynamics, um, watching other parents raise their kids um, and reflecting on my own parenting journey and being a parent. What does that mean? Um, you know, dealing with the frustration of like wanting your kids to do something and them pushing back and exercising and flexing their own autonomy. They're, they have a right to, to make a choice. And sometimes we cannot force them to do what we want them to do. We can't force them to be what, who we want them to be but we can just instill um, values and ideas. And when they're young enough um, and, you know, as, as we're raising them to make, you know, take, I guess, every opportunity to kind of um, talk with them and also show them what our, you know, every family has kind of their own mission statement or, or their set of values informed may, maybe by faith or maybe not, or maybe this belief in, you know, kind of the greater good and doing things for humanity and being a good person, all of those things, all of those values. And we try to, we talk to our kids about it. And we also try to show them through our actions too. Um, and that's kind of as much as we can do. Um, I was actually at a lecture yesterday. I'm taking like a summer class. Uh, and now I, again, now that my kids are a little older, I feel like I can finally do some things for myself too, or like not, as you kind of mentioned, you know, like uh, not necessarily professionally related, but kind of going back and taking classes, um, dealing with different religious topics. And one of the speakers was basically saying like, if your child does not take on the same faith as you, or doesn't have the same values, does that mean that you failed as a parent? Um, and that's a kind of an interesting question and something that many parents I think might feel really deeply. I know that when I, uh, I mean, personally speaking, you know, if, if my kids do something that, or if they, you know, something doesn't come up quite out, come out right. Uh, as ideally as we would like a situation, we kind of feel like, oh, should I have done better? Should I have reminded him? Should I have done this? We kind of blame ourselves, but they have to make their own mistakes. And, and, and what basically the speaker, the scholar was saying too, that that does not make us a failure as a parent. Our job is to guide and to teach and to instill as much as we can. And we give them the tools, but ultimately they're human beings and they have their own choices and they're going to make, they're going to make their own mistakes and they're going to come back and fix those mistakes and, or go on their own journey and kind of back and forth. So I thought, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and even when we're kind of, uh, uh, dis I mean, I guess disciplining or teaching them, um, how do we manage kind of our own emotions? This kind of comes into the, pro the professional in me, I guess, um, you know, the parent parenting changes as your kids get older and, we're also the adults. So we also have to model for them how to, how to act and respond when we're upset. So if we're having a temper tantrum because they're not listening, then that's not really being, we're not really being doing a good job modeling beha the behavior. We have to remember that we're the adults in the room. And um, so that's something I'm, I'm kind of always reminding myself because I tend to be, I can be hot headed as, as other, uh, you know, as um, many other, I guess, parents can be, you know, in the heat of the moment, you had a model for them to take deep breaths. And, um, you know, you can only, you can't always control what other people do, but you can control your, your response and, and how you deal with the situation. So, um, and actually there's a nice, um, there's also it, this, this whole discussion kind of reminded me of a quote too. Um, this is, um, so we have of course, uh, quotes and collections of stories and sayings of the, um, prophet of prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, and we also have, uh, Sometimes we also have quotes of the very close companions, one of them being um, uh, Ali, uh, his um, uh, uh, nephew, and then the fourth uh, 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 caliph too. I'm sorry, his cousin and the fourth caliph. Um, but do not raise with something that he said. And I know my husband kind of always, um, always remembers this and, and reminds me of this. Do not raise your children the way your parents raised you. They were born for a different time. Um, and especially now these days when, you know, speaking of giving advice, when we're reminiscing, it's, it's interesting, right? All these shows that are coming out that are set in the eighties, that's when I grew up. Um, and we're just talking about how complicated life has gotten with our devices and with having like these in our hands all the time. And the discussion, it comes to when do you get your child a phone? And then once you, even if you've like waited, I mean, we waited as long as we could, you know, seventh grade, end of seventh grade. Once you give it to them, it's like a whole new world. And, you know, sometimes it's very frustrating and we just want to like, just go back, turn the, turn the hands of the clock and just go back to a time that just seems simpler to us, you know, which is a very simplified way of looking at things and just take it away or just cut it off or like, you know, but we, 
these are here to stay. So I can't use the same way that I was brought up and grown up without electronics, without devices or the internet and use, I mean, it's just a totally different world um, as an example. So that kind of reminds me of that quote. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I've, one of the things that we can do here is, is contrast a little bit. Not sure if it is, if there is any contrast actually, but as I, as I thought about uh, the, uh, the Christian way of thinking about children, um, we, uh, you know, we have this, this ceremony uh, early on in a child's life that's called baptism. Uh, not all of the Christian faiths do it, uh, baptize babies, but uh, I'm a Catholic and uh, Catholics do baptize babies. And we specifically give the child godparents. Uh, alternate parents, right, uh, mm -hmm. that are supposed to um, step in if they need to, but but also be a uh, uh, another way that children would be encouraged to become godly. And the idea of children being godly, uh, I think, is from uh, the notion that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, there's a, a Latin phrase for that that's called imago dei. Uh, they have the image of God, uh, and they are, in their innocence especially, they are beings that are representing to us what we need to care for and how we need to care for these, these young beings, these innocent beings uh, who, uh, you know, at an early age will start to tell us that they don't need us. Uh, and, and we know that's, that's not true, right? We, we know that, uh, it's, that they really do need us, but they need their space also. They need to be able to make some of their own choices from very early ages. And in my experience, uh, I'm not surprised that the Catholic Church has First Communion at seven and eight years old, because it seems to me that in raising uh, the, uh, the children that I've had in my life, that eight years old is a time when they start to really come into their own as far as negotiating with you, uh, you know, telling you what they like and what they don't like, uh, sometimes actually saying, well, if I do this, will you do that? Um, and understanding that there's uh, some uh, that they've got some agency in uh, in their own world that they can they can negotiate uh, a way to uh, to make things uh, you know happen in the way that they would like them to happen. Uh, they there there is a sense that up until you know maybe eighteen maybe even uh, you know. You could tell me something about brain development. My tendency is to think that we should be honoring uh, adolescents up until, for, for young men, at least, until they're about 25, because their brains are not fully developed. I, I don't know why we've come to, the, to an understanding somehow that 21 or 18 is sufficient, uh, because it's pretty evident. Uh, I used to uh, run a construction company where I had lots of men. And uh, I noticed significant differences when the men in my company uh, would attain an age of 24, 25, 26 uh, in terms of their seriousness, in terms of their view of what their future should look like and so on. Uh, so in any event, there's, there's a developmental process that uh, we need to, as, as parents and other adults surrounding them, we need to honor it. And uh, I think that the, uh, like I said, the Christian understanding is that there's that these children that we, but certainly these these young children that are put into our care, they are uh, they are made in the image and likeness of God. They have the essence of God. Uh, we often call that soul. Uh, it's it's something. It's soul or spirit or something that is uh, ineffable. It's it it can't be carefully defined. But we know that there's something there in a life force that comes forth out of these children, uh, and we uh, we feel it. I mean, we actually feel that spirit uh, 
from those children. We can feel that we can see how that spirit is is um, is expressed differently uh, from one child to the next, even though they have, you know, supposedly they have the same uh, sets of genes that uh, that the other children have, but uh, somehow they express themselves so differently uh, as human beings. And our role is to try to figure out how to uh, honor that expression in some way, uh, to not uh, to guide it so that it does that it finds itself uh, in providing some sort of fruit for themselves and for society. So uh, I like the, the the way you put it, um, and and you know I I think that it's an interesting that we use some different terms I suppose to. Uh, uh, to express it, uh, I, I was wondering as you spoke and as I was thinking of uh, the idea of godparents, is there a, a sense of godparents in uh, in Islam? Um, not that I know of, um, but as you're mentioning it, that's just such a beautiful concept. And I remember growing up with friends and they would mention that like, oh, these are my ga- my godparents are visiting or this is my godparent. And I always was like, oh, very curious and fascinated by, by the concept. Um, I guess we don't have like defined, you know, somebody defined as a God mother or Godfather. Um, but, but definitely I would say it kind of speaks to this idea that's, um, you know, that's really kind of common to many cultures around the world, um, that, you know, it takes a village. Um, and so that's, what's really interesting about Godparents. Cause it's like, it's bringing, it's basically encouraging the family, uh, the parents, it's, it's a, it's a helpful concept for the parent and the child, right? So you have somebody else there to kind of help you when things are tough, when you're not really sure how to get a, get out of a certain situation, you have somebody else that can help guide you. And I imagine godparents oftentimes are more, maybe more experienced, sometimes older than the parents, maybe not, but somebody else, obviously it's somebody that you, uh, as a parent, you're designating. So you trust them, you trust their judgment, somebody that's, um, that, that, that has some wisdom, um, you know, maybe they're older than you, maybe they're not, but I guess it kind of speaks to, you know, the, the idea that it takes a village and that, um, you know, yes, parent, you have the parent child relationship, but it's so important to have that village, to have the the grandparents and the uncles and the aunts and all those people that are around you. Um, and, and especially again, you know, as kids are growing, um, they have their parents there to help guide them. But, um, as we know, um, you know, you get to certain ages where it's like, they, sometimes they listen, in a different way to a, a special aunt that they have a relationship with, or, you know, even beyond that, like special, uh, interestingly, I think in our communities now, um, uh, of course, not all Muslims are immigrants, not all, but uh, that in the immigrant community, like we have um, many families that kind of came around the same time and whose parents are friends. And so we're friends with their, you know, it's kind of like intergenerational. I've got very close friends whose our parents knew each other back in India or Pakistan. And now we're friends here. We've kind of continued that. And they're literally like some of them, we even use the same terms for aunt and uncle, not just aunt and uncle, but like Kala, like means, means uh, mother's sister. I've got a few very close friends. My kids call their mom's Kala, um, which means mom, mom's sister. Um, and so, you know, they're kind of, and they're, they're very integral parts of uh, their lives too. And we ask them you know, my friends that have kids that are a little bit older, I'm constantly asking them for their advice or how did you handle this situation or what do you do in this, you know? Um, so kind of maybe a similar idea. And actually the other thing that I think was interesting as, I, as you were speaking was talking about the communion around age seven or eight. That's that's really interesting. There's a few things that are, um, I can think of a few parallels. Um, one, this is kind of more of a cultural celebration, but we actually have kind of a celebration that's around that age too. Um, well, I guess some people do it kind of younger. There's not like a set age for it, but it's around, you know, five to seven, basically a cultural celebration of when kids start to read the Quran, um, start learning how to read the Arabic text, the ho- the holy text. And um, we have a huge emphasis on reading the pure word, like reading the actual Arabic text. So even though I'm not a native Arabic speaker, it was really important um, religiously, culturally uh, as uh, in my family that actually my grandfather taught me how to read Quran. So Again, I don't speak Arabic, but I can actually, I can, and it's not unusual, I can read Arabic text. 
Mm-hmm. And so we, when kids start to learn how to read and, and they kind of set on, they, they start on this journey of reading the, the text from beginning to end. And that can take, you know, a few years. Um, it's uh, oftentimes there's a more, this is more cultural. This is kind of more of a South Asian culture uh, uh, tradition. We call it a bismillah, which is the word, you know, in the name of God, we start anything that we do, but particularly when we start reading the Quran or surah, then we'll say bismillah and that, that party, it's kind of a party. It's a ceremony called a bismillah ceremony and a, and a party. You invite people and have food and everything and dress up. Um, and that's around that age, actually. So it's kind of interesting that it kind of parallels a communion. Some people start a little bit early. Um, I was lucky because I lived with my, speaking of the village, um, I was l- lucky enough that my grandparents lived with us for a few years. And so I learned from my grandfather. And so because he was retired and at home with us, he could work on it with me every day. And so I finished it quite early and then you have another party. Um, and some people just do one or the other because it's a lot of parties, but another ceremony called an Amin, even if you don't have a party, you're commemorating it. It's a big deal. Like you'll get a cake and you know, what do you want for finishing the Quran? It's you make it a really big deal because it is a big deal to finish our holy book in a different language. Even if you speak Arabic, it's a different type of dialect. It's a, it's a different skill set in a sense to read the holy book from the beginning to the end. Um, and it takes several months, uh, some years sometimes, and we commemorate the end of it with an Amin. So some kids finish it early, like they might actually be seven or eight, or maybe a little bit later, like 10, 11, 12 or, or later. And that's okay. It's as I'm telling myself now, as a parent, my kids are on different trajectories. And it's like, I'm coming to the, it's like, it's not a race and it's a journey and everyone's on their own journey. And I'm not as concerned about how old they are exactly. Um, and the other thing that I'm thinking about that age that's special is um, seven, actually exactly around seven is um, when uh, we encourage kids to kind of be a little bit more serious with their prayers mm-hmm. um, with the five daily prayers. And that's kind of more, I think, to inculcate like this idea of like, you know, building habits. And if it's something that you do from a young age, then it'll be easier to stick with. It's harder sometimes to start something, um, you know, as an adult. It's kind of trying to incorporate, we're trying to incorporate that from a young age because it can be a challenge to meaning praying five times a day that can, you know, that for me personally, that can be a challenge always to do them on time and to pray. And my husband will definitely agree with that because he kind of pokes fun at me about it. That's one of my personal challenges. Um, but, uh, but that's the age that we say that we want that, that we encourage kids to kind of start praying and taking it a little bit more seriously. Um, so much so that sometimes even the seventh birthday, some people might not do like every birthday, but the seventh birthday, they'll make it a bigger deal. And they'll call it like a, like a prayer. Like this is the age when we're going to start, you know, you know, they'll give, they'll give their child like a, their own prayer mat or the prayer beads and kind of, again, kind of make it fun and make it a big deal. So I think that's interesting that, that, that is, it is something special about that age. Um, and then also I was kind of thinking about, as we're talking about growing and how things change and the age of maturity, um, uh, there's also another saying, as I mentioned, the sayings of the prophet, um, Muhammad, peace be upon him, are called hadith. There's a hadith that's very uh, well known and um, I, uh, people reference this a lot, um, especially every parenting talk that you go to that's hosted by a mosque, so the speaker will mention this hadith, but I think it's, it's really beautiful. Um, because actually what's interesting for us, uh, is that we have, like I mentioned, this collection of sayings and, um, uh, actions of the prophet that we try to emulate. Um, and there's actually a lot of, you know, a lot of examples of him being kind of a father and the family man and kind of like how he helped out in the home and how he contributed and his relationship with his, uh, children, um, so this, this hadith is really uh, is um, quoted often and is very special, but basically it's kind of talking about how, um, how we interact with children at different times. So the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, play with them for the first seven years, then teach them for the next seven years, and then advise them for the next seven years after that. So it's almost like kind of um, dividing, you know, the upbringing of a child into those three stages. Um, and so it's, which I think is really interesting, you know, playing with them for the, so like, uh, and we have so many studies even now that show, you know, even when we're talking about dads, um, how important it is that, um, dads are involved and especially that physical play and, um, you know, playing tag, hide and seek tickling, like, you know, how important that is for like that physical connection and, um, you know, and kind of building those bonds, especially between speaking of fathers and as father's day is approaching, um, and I definitely see that with my 
my husband, he's very hands-on and, um, he, you know, when they're babies, he's the one that's like throwing them up, but freaking me out, throwing them up in the <laughs> air a little too high. Um, but he's very physical, um, you know, playing tag and, um, and my kids love it. And I'm, I'm probably kind of more the boring parent, but I'll play a card game or two if I'm in the mood. Um, and then teaching them the next seven years. So like first you're building that, that, um, that foundation of that relationship, um, the physical, the bonding, and then teaching them. Um, and we know kids are sponges. And if you think about like kind of the stages, um, Erickson's stages of uh, development, um, you know, this is kind of like the school age, I guess you could say maybe like seven to 12 latency stage where, um, and actually I really love that. I love that stage. Even when my, when I see kids around that stage as a professional, and then um, now that I have teenagers, I'm enjoying my two little ones at that stage that they want to be around you. They want to, you know, um, they want to spend time with you, play, uh, play with you, play games with you still, um, but do things with you, even just like reading together. Um, you're still reading out loud kind of at that, at that stage, they can read, you know, they can read to themselves. That's another thing my husband does, even when they're a little bit older, he loves reading with them at bedtime. And I used to be like, they need to read by themselves. Like we can't keep reading the, to them, but he really saw that actually as a very sacred time before bedtime, you know, reading something. So we'll read like Harry Potter or something. Um, and it's like, it's like kind of the last time where they kind of want to spend time with you and be with you and very much in school, like the rule following and academics and achievement is so important and mastery is so important. And then the last seven years is advising them. So now they're kind of getting out in the world. They're kind of, you know, now with my oldest, I'm seeing that this is the first time that he's kind of making friends. I don't really know his friends as I used to. I, I used to know all of his friends. I knew all the parents. I was really involved. Now he's kind of spreading his wings and he's meeting people that I don't necessarily know. Um, and he's going to start, you know, as kids, his age, teenagers, they, as you mentioned, they start driving, they're going to start getting their first jobs. And so we just hope that, you know, we just keep advising and giving them advice. And as you mentioned, they're kind of, there's this push and pull, like they'll act like they don't, they don't need you, but they very much do. Um, and they're looking, there's just, it's just kind of in a different way. Um, and sometimes actually that's where technology can be helpful too, as I mentioned, kind of just this issue with the phone, but I, I've, Think that's really interesting that how seeing how parents and kids communicate and sometimes you can communicate in a different way through text and through gifts and emojis you know you can express yourself and it's really funny to kind of see them expressing themselves and sharing little jokes and things but then also kind of like an intimate thing too sometimes kids it might be kind of uncomfortable for them to be like i love you but you can always kind of say in the text and and they appreciate that so i kind of like yeah. that I, I do too, and 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 I love that idea of uh, of uh, you know the advice from uh, your religious perspective that there's seven years, uh, you know that it's divided into three uh, intervals of seven years. I uh, I would love to even explore that further. That's interesting, but I, what I want to get us uh, into a little bit right now is the village. Mm -hmm. uh, what is going on in the village? Uh, you and I probably, are, you know, are doing a pretty good job. I with my grandchildren, you with your uh, your, your children at home. Uh, but there's something going on right now uh, in in our society, in our village, that is uh, that that I think makes us wonder whether or not children are sacred to us, at least in terms of society. Uh, you are, are treating children uh, as well as, as adults, but you are, you are treating uh, people who are um, maybe being more abandoned in society, in society than, uh, than we're willing to admit. And uh, we were talking before we began to do the recording about the just uh, abject sadness of thinking of those children in Uvalde, uh, Texas, uh, that we, and, and, and if that was an isolated incident, we might be able to say, uh, okay, well, you know, uh, there's going to be crazy things that happen in this world. And, but there's a pattern to this there, it, you know, uh, you were mentioning earlier that you were in your child's classroom and very aware of your fears. And, uh, you know, I think of my, uh, you know, grandchildren going off to their elementary school and thinking, 
are they safe? Uh, and I have some um, some ability to to do something, but I'm not sure what that is uh, exactly. I, I you know I know that I have a responsibility, maybe even a sacred responsibility, to do something, but I seem to be coming up against other people who don't take that responsibility of protecting children uh, from their uh, from people who may be mentally ill or maybe making a political point. I don't, I'm not exactly clear on, on what, what's going on. I, I have some sense that maybe we are uh, not generally, but in, in significant ways, abandoning young men, that young men are being left to figure things out for themselves and are not getting the kind of love and attention and a sense of sacredness that they deserve. How do you uh, think about all of that? What, what do you think is going on, uh, either from a, your faith perspective or from your professional perspective? That's hmm. a very, you know, it's a difficult question. And I don't know if any of us, of course, you know, know the answers, but I, it kind of leaves me at an interesting inner intersection, I guess, too, um, because as a professional, mental health professional, as a psychiatrist, um, we, um, and as a minority, um, as a woman of color and as a religious minority, ethnic minority, um, and as a parent, uh, you know, there's so many, there's so many aspects to this, I guess. Um, the first thing is, is yes. I mean, just kind of that vulnerability. And there's been several times in the past, you know, I would say decades since my kids have kind of been in school now, um, where we, uh, you know, my husband and I, like we're, there'll be certain situations and uh, events that we're, yes, we, we feel vulnerable. We feel powerless. We are scared to send our kids to school. Some of those times are during these school shootings. Um, and you know, this hit us so close to home or home in, uh, on November 30th, 2021 in Oxford. And we have very dear friends that, um, that are in that community and, uh, in, in that school even, um, and that just the, the ripples that it created across the whole state, this whole region, um, you know, I know many parents were worried about sending their kids to school. There was copycat, um, threats. Um, our kids were anxious and scared. And even a few years ago, I remember that I, I had other, uh, we've had, um, parents, um, you know, my kids actually until eighth grade, they go to parochial school. So they go to an Islamic school where they, of course they're, they, they have all their regular subjects. Plus they have extra subjects too, just like other parochial schools, Christian or Catholic or, um, uh, Jewish schools. We have those as well here, uh, many in the Southeast Michigan area, um, where they have, you know, um, a multitude of other subjects as well. And there was times actually with the last election with, um, you know, between the years of 2016 and, uh, and 2020, where there was times where we, we really actually kind of felt um, uh, that there was this, you know, um, vo very loud voices that did not, that they were kind of against um, any kind of minority. We felt that very loud, loud and clear at times, unfortunately. Um, and we know that that's not a majority by any means. Um, but it was scary for a little bit. And there was times with sending our kids specifically to Islamic school felt very vulnerable too. Um, and our, our kids uh, safe here, there was a few days that I forgot exactly what it was in response to. Um, I think maybe some threats again, like there was a pastor that, or somebody, not even, I wouldn't say a pastor, but somebody religious or with the religious kind of agenda that was, that wanted to kind of come and shoot up a mosque or something like that in Dearborn. And many of the parents were very worried about sending their kids to the, particularly the Islamic schools at that time. So I kind of feel, you know what I'm saying is like, I kind of feel it on different, from different angles. And then as a, as a mental health professional. So this is kind of usually the rhetoric that kind of comes up during after school shootings um, is, uh, you know, is this because mental illness, we're not, we're not treating the mentally ill. And, you know, what's interesting is actually, I gave a talk to, um, some of, to some psychiatry residents shortly after that. And I was kind of pouring over, um, you know, kind of some studies and articles, although there's uh, a lot of many, um, there's not a lot of funding actually for studying kind of like specifics, you know, um, for, of school of gun violence, basically, uh, many, a lot of that has been um, blocked um, by, you know, lobbyists and with, you know, certain 
you know, and I don't want to get into the legalities of all that, but, um, but basically, you know, kind of who do people tend to blame and kind of what is actually, you know, at play here. And what we actually know is that, um, honestly, people that have mental illness are, um, are much more likely to be victims of violence and gun violence than to be the perpetrators. So it's actually kind of not really fair or enough to kind of say that, or, you know, is it kind of, you know, are we kind of becoming, are, 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 is this becoming like kind of a scapegoat, you know? Um, is it, uh, and the question is, and this is actually kind of a theoretical framework, is it dangerous people or dangerous weapons? Um, and, you know, that kind of gets into a whole debate, but, uh, um, but, you know, it kind of, there's a lot of questions that come up. I think the reason we jump to that is like, who in their right mind would do something like this, who, especially children, right? You just cannot imagine that anybody that's thinking straight would do something like this. But it kind of comes down to how is mental illness defined and how is the lay public kind of using these terms of mental illness? How do we define it in research? There's a difference between um, between like um, what we call um, sociopathic behavior, antisocial behavior, criminal, you know, kind of behavior versus like, you know, we have to differentiate this between from like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. If we're talking about, um, you know, schizophrenia, uh, particularly like more severe mental illness, again, they're more likely to be, and many studies have shown this, and we know that they're much more likely to be victims of uh, gun violence or violence than, than, again, than to be the perpetrators. Um, so, you know, and then, and there's a lot of papers on these kind of things. I'm kind of looking through some of things, but, um, but, yeah, these are kind of questions on how do we define it? It's very easy. It's kind of like an easy headline, you know, um, and we're kind of looking for an easy answer. Um, and, you know, maybe, and, and sometimes we're kind of thwarting it in a certain direction. So we don't, you know, that could be on purpose so that we're not kind of addressing kind of like the real questions and real pushback uh, uh, that could, that, that maybe is needed to change policy and, and to sway lawmakers and things like that which is actually a bipartisan issue, you know, and then we also know it's the, the issue of gun control or even, um, you know, it's very, it's a very heated discussion. Um, but act, as I was kind of preparing like uh, for that talk, it was really interesting. There's been so many proposals for things. No one is actually saying to take guns away, but if we're talking about military style assault weapons and we're talking about like, hey, let's have some just rules that make sense you should not be able to get a gun, like just willy nilly when you feel like it back, you know, background checks. And then also there's, um, there's, there's, uh, you know, solutions that have kind of been proposed and there's some States actually that have kind of taken, that have had, that have kind of adopted these, um, what's the, uh, some of these rules, common sense kind of gun policies. Um, and the other one kind of a big one is, um, I'm kind of trying to find the, I want to give the right, the term for it. Where is it basically the, um, uh, gosh, there's a, there's a specific term and I know we're like on a recorded, but, um, oh, extreme risk protection orders, basically enabling family law enforcement, um, kind of to make a case that maybe this individual is not a good time for them to have a gun. Um, and then actually that individual has an opportunity to kind of present their own case and present evidence. And then the judge is kind of ruling. It doesn't mean that they're, that they that they will never get it back, but like, it's a temporary kind of order that they are not allowed to have like their, you know, their weapon. But I mean, it's, it's really difficult. These questions are really difficult because so much of it is, um, is, uh, it's kind of a, it's a type of cultural competence too. It's kind of part of, part of, uh, especially some areas in the United States, it's kind of part of the culture. And there was another article that I read that I thought was really interesting. We talk about cultural competence um, in, in all fields. And in medicine, it's really important because if, as physicians, we are encouraging people, we're giving, we're prescribing medications, we're prescribing treatments, we're encouraging therapy and cultural competence is just at the core of that. Because if, if there's no trust and if people, if people don't feel that they're being heard and that you, uh, you don't understand where they're coming from, they're much less likely to kind of follow through. They'll say, oh, okay, doctor, yes, I'm going to do that. But then they don't really trust you. They're not going to do it. And we know that. And it was interesting that uh, there was um, kind of there's a um, kind of this discussion about having cultural competence when we're even talking about um, these kind of things too, because when we, you know, when we use these terms and um, these loaded terms and words like gun control and you know and and rights and Second Amendment, like people get really um, <laughs> figuratively and literally kind of up in arms about that, very defensive and 
because it's, it's part of a culture too. And we kind of have to, we do have to kind of um, realize that um, and not necessarily place blame or make it a black and white, like you're a bad person if you believe this. It's kind of goes back to how things were actually with the last election cycle. Um, but use those same concepts of cultural competence to kind of come to maybe try to try to have these discussions so people don't get so defensive, maybe. I don't know. Yes. Um, and and uh, uh, in another podcast, we might talk about uh, one of the uh, projects of the Interfaith Leadership Council to uh, to deal with that, to get people to uh, to get beyond their defenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for our discussion right now, um, we we really are uh, only have a few minutes left. Uh, I want to 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 mention the concept of idols. Both of our faiths uh, are adamant about not having idols, um, and and to uh, to pay attention to the one God. Uh, we have different you know, names for it, uh, Allah, you know, in Arabic and, and, and God in English, but, but uh, they're the, they're the, the same God. And, and, and I think that the idea of not having, uh, not worshiping a, uh, a false God is uh, the idea that there are some things that we can uh, seem to be putting our trust in that do not have God in them, that do not have a God, an expression of God. Uh, our children can be sacred to us and, um, and wonderful, and, and uh, we pay attention to them, and they can't possibly be an idol, not, not in the sense I'm talking about right now, whereas, whereas a, uh, a weapon can be. A weapon can be clearly an idol. If, if, if you take a, a uh, and give the importance to a weapon beyond the uh, the importance of a child. Uh, you've made a an, a in in my understanding of what it means to have idols in your life. You've made a uh, th- those weapons an idol. You have said that somehow something mm-hmm. that inanimate um, that is uh, that really doesn't have the God force in it is more important than, uh, you know, the dangers that 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 weapon presents to our society. And we have, you know, without having to 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 go into the history uh, of uh, uh, not having easy access to military weapons, uh, we do have, you know, we do have an an experience in America where uh, making it difficult to get a hold of those weapons makes a huge difference. Uh, and so, you know, I just wonder if, uh, if we're really applying our faith carefully, if we've allowed ourselves to become enamored with an idol. Uh, I've suggested to a, uh, a, a, another psychiatrist friend of mine that, uh, that adolescent gunplay fantasies play a part in some of this. That and I'm not saying that that everyone who uh, experiences the, the the desire to have a gun and play with it is necessarily going to go in and shoot up a school, but there's there there's some significant number we now know that uh, are uh, imagining themselves as powerful when they have that weapon in their hands and having solve the problem of their feeling inadequate in some way, which is the norm of adolescence. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, how many people have uh, uh, committed suicide because they've had easy access to guns, especially men. Let's, men seem to, uh, to use uh, that uh, method for suicide much more often than women statistically. Uh, what about the death of children when guns are not stored safely? It's more likely that a ch- child is going to die uh, from a gun that's not stored, stored safely than it is likely that someone will uh, int- be an intruder in your home and that you will need that, uh, that weapon uh, for that. So it just seems to me that, we've, that, there's a, that our religious understandings give us 
some sense of, of how we should make a priority uh, and to be careful about uh, by uh, uh, being enamored with idols, things that are not as, as sacred as our children uh, should be to us. Uh, that, that feeling on my part is, is really quite strong. And I'm not sure, I know I don't share that with every Christian. I think there's, you know, plenty of Christians who disagree with me on that, but that is, uh, that's the place I, I come from is that if we're, if we really think our children are sacred, uh, then uh, I can't imagine a way of, of, uh, of assigning sacredness to, to a, uh, uh, an automatic weapon that uh, that is murderous, and um, you know, I'm personally would like people to uh, gather an image of what it looks like to have used a weapon like that on babies. Uh, it's uh, and I, and I'm not sure that it's the only area. I'd like to, you know maybe as we uh, take one one or two more minutes here, you might talk about uh, the idea of access to mental health by, uh, I mean, not all people are stable enough, uh, that is, parents are not all stable enough to uh, give the kind of advice that their children uh, desperately need. And uh, uh, it's, it's hard to get access to, uh, to mental health services. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, you know, as I kind of mentioned, that sometimes the the conversation conversation does shift to that, right. To, to mental, to talking about access to mental health. And, and if, um, this, you know, kind of what I was saying just a few minutes ago, if that does lead to better access and better, um, you know, allowing people to be able to utilize mental health services, then that, then that's, that's a good thing too. So then, okay. Yeah. I mean, and I don't disagree with that. Definitely. Um, we don't want to kind of point the finger and say everyone that does this is mentally ill, but at the same time, definitely, I definitely totally agree with you. Um, actually, I mean, one of the biggest things in our training is, um, is dealing with, uh, people that with individuals, um, with depression or with other, you know, that have suicidal thoughts. And one of the first things we do is, um, is ask about, um, owner gun, you know, having a gun access to a gun. Um, and we, we know that removing a gun temporary, temporarily, like drastically reduces the chances of uh, suicide by, you know, by, by a weapon. Um, so it is, it definitely can be a challenge. Um, I, um, and I think it's not that the help is not there, um, but it's, you know, oftentimes, well, uh, it's, it's the, it can be the first area where those, where resources are taken away. We know that. I mean, there was a huge, I mean, just with the deinstitutionalization of so many people with the state hospitals closing a few decades ago, you know, we were still feeling the ramifications of that. Um, and there's some wonderful agencies. There's some wonderful places, um, even here in the, in the Metro Detroit area that, um, that, that very much their whole mission is to take care of children and families. I'm thinking of like the children's center, um, uh, so many places, you know, and, and I've met so many people that are really passionate about this work and specifically want to go into mental health to help families, to help children, help couples, help adults, um, deal with substance issues, um, mental illness, all these things. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of really good people that are kind of going in the field and, um, and it's just, uh, I, I, you know, it's kind of one step at a time. I feel like in many ways, um, there is still stigma, but I, you know, even compared to five years ago, 10 years ago, um, I think people, it's becoming more normal to say that you're seeing somebody, you're seeing a therapist, you're getting help. Um, I know that these conversations are happening much more often in our religious spaces. Um, we have, um, the imams, um, regularly infuse in their like Friday sermons, you know, when, when, when these things happen, they, they regularly talk about the importance of um, getting professional help. Um, there's a religious aspect. And then there's also the aspect of, you know, going to somebody that knows more and that's religiously, that's okay. Um, I feel like there, I am hoping, and maybe I'm, you know, just seeing a skewed sample, but um, that there's less shame in getting help. Um, so it's access, but then there was a huge thing with stigma, especially in minority communities and immigrant communities. Um, and I, I think it, I think slowly, but surely it's getting better. And the more we are talking about it, then the better we'll get. I always say like, 
if we can get to the point where we're talking about going to a therapist as easily and uh, from the tongue as like, oh, I'm going to go to a haircut or I'm going to my, as, as if you're saying, I'm going to go to get a haircut in the same breath to say, I, and then I have to go to therapy, then, then I think we're kind of moving in the right direction because we're normalizing it. And, um, and I've seen, I've been in a room where someone has said that when they're like at a lectern and giving a lecture and they're talking really openly about getting help and how much that helped them and what they gained from that. And it just like, it just helps everybody in the room to hear that, to hear somebody that they respect being very open about getting help. Of course, that takes a special person and everyone has a right to their privacy. But again, you know, that really does a lot to kind of fight that stigma and the shame. Well, what I would hope that might uh, come uh, out of uh our discussion and other discussions like it would be that we wouldn't just offhandedly talk about our children being sacred or even that they are a sacred responsibility. Uh, we, I think we who have uh, faith values, uh, people who have a, uh, a focus on humanism, uh, that humanity is special in some way we we don't have to uh, all agree religiously on what that means but i think we can all agree that humanity is special in some way and uh, and that if we're going to talk about these uh, these innocent children that are given into our care as uh, sacred in any way we need to actualize that idea somehow we need to define what it means to be to, to say that something is sacred and then do something that that makes us uh, feel that that sacredness is there that it's being that we've taken that that uh, that responsibility seriously uh, you had mentioned earlier uh, the the poem by uh, Khalil Gibran and I think it's a beautiful way to end our discussion this evening or this uh, today. So if you would just uh, maybe, uh, uh, give us the uh, that poem, what else would you like to help introduce it in some way and, and uh, present it? No, thank you. No, that's perfect. Yeah, this is something, a poem that I um, uh, read a long time ago. And when we were talking about um, speaking and the sacred, this whole topic and sacredness of children, it was kind of the first thing that kind of popped in my mind. So I, I thought I would share. Um, and many of you, I'm sure, are uh, have read this poem or heard it in some way. Um, but uh, yeah, Khalil Gibran um, on children. And a woman who held a babe against her bosom said, speak to us of children. And he said, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archers seize the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. That is such a wonderful way to end, and I've really enjoyed this discussion with you, Dr. Marouf. I, uh, I, I hope that our listeners find it as interesting as I have, and uh, I would look forward to having uh, other discussions with you. It's been a very, very uh, wonderful experience. So thank you for being willing to, uh, to come on to this podcast and uh, to talk about the sacredness of our children. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. And it's really been an honor. Thank you. Well, it's been a mutual honor. Thank you. <laughs>